1: This is Recode Media Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm speaking with Zach Kornfeld, who is better known to millions of people around the world as Zach from the Try Guys. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. We're better known to millions more as who? As who? Well, that, that's, that's my first question. There's a lot of people, literally millions, yeah. of people who know and love the Try Guys, and there are a lot of other folks who say who. So for the people who are in the latter part of that, Equation. Explain what a Try Guy is, what the Try Guys do. What
0: is a Try Guy? So, we are a YouTube group. We have a company here and we make a whole slew of content. Uh, It began Try Guys itself as a show uh, where we were trying stuff unfamiliar to us. So, that's anything from trying drag to swimming with sharks in the ocean to uh, doing a labor pain simulator. Uh, But that show exploded into uh, a YouTube company. And, you know, being on YouTube, we have to diversify our content. And so we're now just a roster of shows. We have uh, comedy cooking shows like Without a Recipe where we comedically try and cook without knowing how to do it and uh you know i think the the common thread in our videos is the way that we edit where it will cut between us as the amateurs earnestly exploring and then an expert who is teaching you at home how to do something but then through our exploits we're creating contrast comedy
1: and and yes, you're a YouTube group, but an enormously successful one. You've got eight million people subscribed to your YouTube channel. You're nearly a decade into this and still yeah. very successful, which is extraordinary for sort of any pop culture thing, let alone something on the internet. I, I did. I was going to ask you later, but I'll start here. What you're describing, the the kind of stuff you do, I would I would describe as stunt content, and the, I seems to me that that stuff seems to do well on the internet on youtube i think of mr beast i think of uh who are the guys the uh the guys who do the sports stunts that youtube loves to feature all the time are you thinking of a uh, dude perfect maybe? thank you yeah so is do you feel do, do i see you wincing when i say stunt is there you don't like well, that well we're, we're
0: stunt Jason i i wince only because i think that media more broadly assumes that every youtube group is pranksters yeah i know when we had our, our moment in the spotlight last year it was like oh these youtube pranks I'm like i've done one prank video ever but yes yeah, certainly there is some uh, uh there's a heightened element to a lot of the stuff that we do but I, i'd say the difference with us is that we're like we're like if jackass were a bunch of nerds, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we're very earnestly interested in understanding either the people or the the profession or the world that we are entering, and we are using us, again, to create contrast to better understand the people and world around us. So there's an education element in what we create.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's a, it has an educational element. It's, I think, kinder than some of the other stunt <laughs> yeah. stuff, yeah. both to yourself and to your audience. Um, I think that's part of your brand. Am I summing that up correctly? I think there's a kindness, and also, frankly, I'm not. I, I'm not a very brave
0: person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of our videos are, are often united by the fact that we
1: don't want to do the things that we're doing, but we're going to give it a try anyway. And some more context here: you guys started off, and when I knew you, you were you were BuzzFeed employees, and I think you were sort yes. of the first. BuzzFeed employees to then sort of become a brand in and of yourself. Uh, yep. Quinta Brunson, famously, who's now uh, a huge network TV star. Incredible. I think the other one. Explain how you got started at BuzzFeed and and then when you left. Yeah, so we we began all as producers at BuzzFeed in 2014.
0: And we were there for about four years and our job then was as producers. What does that mean? We were responsible for six videos a month and that's everything from start to finish. So... Coming up with an idea, shooting an idea, producing the idea, editing the idea, uh, the video, sometimes jumping in front of camera as well. It was this really exciting uh, collection of energy. You had And this all was of-
1: back when BuzzFeed was the future of the internet and they were <laughs> sure. leaning into video and you guys were sort of the, the tip of the spear.
0: Yeah, this was it was a nascent video program. They, you know, when I joined, it was about twenty people in an office off of Melrose. Uh, they then moved offices, I think, three times while I was there. And and I mean, we watched it explode. The channel went from a few million to you know north of twenty million subscribers or something like that. Um, and, and yeah, it was really you know, you were just trying to create a ton of ideas. It was a laboratory. It was, uh, if something did well, you tried to dissect it. It was the beginning days of
1: viral video. And I remember talking to the the BuzzFeed folks who were running the, the West Coast video operation then, and they were talking about you guys and Quinta. I remember they were telling me that Quinta was so popular at that point, she couldn't go to the grocery store. They had to mm. like, get her stuff. And I was asking what seemed to me to be a really obvious question, which is, well, if these people are becoming famous while they're BuzzFeed employees, what happens when they either want to go do something else or turn around and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm more popular than BuzzFeed is. So how, how did that work for you guys? You become this enormous brand. BuzzFeed was using you to help sell advertising. They, I don't know if they brought you to their upfronts, but they certainly promoted you a lot. We were there. there. Oh, yeah. You were there. When do you decide, wait a minute, maybe we could live off on our own separate from BuzzFeed? And how does that negotiate? How does that happen? We were there for about four years. I was a producing partner at
0: that time. I remember there was this big, splashy article about you know BuzzFeed taking on Hollywood. It was us. It was Quinta. uh, Kelsey Dara was part of that. Ashley Perez. And the Try Guys, as a brand, basically, here's what it is. I felt that creatively, we had done as much as we could under someone else's roof. It wasn't even about the money in my pocket to me. I, I am... You know, steadfast. I just love the creative. It was feeling like I couldn't exploit the brand in all the different directions that, that I th- saw possible. I was, you know, going to budget approval meetings for my videos and, and you know, s- simple things like merchandise, building a community. And, you know, we left five years ago. We've been now doing our own independent company longer than we were at BuzzFeed, which is wild to me. And the first thing we did was say, okay, Let's go on tour. Let's write a book. Let's make a channel. Let's mm-hmm. make a slate of shows instead of just this one show. So it was really about seeing an opportunity to grow this brand into its fullest potential.
1: And they let you leave with the name. And um, yeah, I would think if I were them, I'd say, wait, 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 we built you. You guys were no-name 20-somethings. You started working for us. Yep. You exist because we gave you this platform. We love the idea of you going to make more stuff that we make money from, how did they not keep hold of you?
0: Yeah, no, it's exactly what happened. They, they had no obligation to give us our IP. We mm-hmm. built our IP as employees. And I, I give Jonah Peretti a lot of credit. We had a lo- very lengthy legal discussion, uh, mm-hmm. we'll call it. And um, you know he had no reason that he had to give us even a pathway to purchase our IP. But he did that, and we were
1: able to walk away with it. Oh, so you literally cut him a check or, or handed over some dollars? It cost me money, but it was money I think that was well spent. And, and then how did you think about going, all right, because I, I remember talking to a bunch of BuzzFeed folks who were going through versions of this saying, all right, you've got this giant platform that is really good at distributing you across the internet how do you have to change things when you're doing a solo or in your case, what was then a four person operation? And and what, what do you what is what is leaving an operation like BuzzFeed? What, what are the holes you have to fill and how do you fill them?
0: We went from being uh, part of a giant machine to having to create our own media company from scratch. There's no playbook for youtubers or or this small type of digital production every single person who has a youtube channel they're going to structure their team in a different way we at least wanted to fill that middle ground between digital and traditional we wanted to make stuff that lived on traditional but had higher production value higher storytelling we thought about our stories in terms of 3 x structure and our edits in that in those terms as well giving our editors a lot of time to make fulfilling stories so we brought in a producer and executive producer rachel cole who came from traditional. She had worked on Portlandia before working with us. And we built our team up in that way. I think some of the nuances as well is when you're creating a digital media production company, you are creating community. You're creating a connection between you and your audience. And so all of your offering, everything you do is content, right? But that content hopefully is in service of connecting on a more deep level with your viewers.
1: Do you think mechanically about, all right, YouTube knows who BuzzFeed is. And so that's just sort of a giant fire hose of content. And there's sort of a relationship between YouTube and BuzzFeed and later on BuzzFeed and Facebook, etc. And they're very good at getting stuff out. So we can make great stuff. But how do we ensure that that stuff is going to get carried on the platforms we need to, to do? How did you figure that part out? Uh, we were very confident in that because we
0: were the people making that content, right? I you know, I was natural
1: confidence, like we've it's good stuff. So obviously, people are going to watch it.
0: Well, look you can call it confidence or arrogance, but I was there from day one in figuring out those strategies of what makes a good thumbnail, what makes a good video, why are people watching this? So, you know, BuzzFeed made lots of content, but there's Mm -hmm. a reason that Okay, I guess this is the most arrogant I'll get on this podcast. There's a reason that our no, content was, was the most viewed on their yeah. channel. We, we had wonderful uh, confidence in ourselves as creators and the people that we were working with. What's interesting is that you know, now comes into the discussion how algorithms work. And so in the beginning, our videos were getting swept up in the algorithm as if we had never left, we were getting from the beginning the same exact views, but we didn't have subscribers, and that's because we were just getting fed to people as if like, oh, nothing changed no mm-hmm. a, a large majority of our audience for the first six months to a year didn't realize that it what they were
1: watching was on a different channel and so the algorithm in that case benefited you the you know a common a common refrain from YouTube uh, creators, creators of all sorts is the YouTube is fickle. Uh, the, Absolutely. The, YouTube, the the algorithm is fickle. And one day they will decide, they'll either announce they're making a change or they won't announce they're making a change, even worse. And all of a sudden your distribution gets choked off. Have you, have you guys felt versions of that?
0: Oh, 100%. I, I, that is, I'd say, the defining challenge of being a YouTuber. And it has hit us in many different ways. I, you know, when we came up, it happened to be that the content that we, we were making is something that the almighty algorithm was favoring. We were making longer form content with more interesting storytelling at a time that YouTube shifted away from two to three minute sketches towards 20-minute, hour-long episodes. Now we are in the resurgence of short form, right? Mm-hmm. TikTok took over. So now YouTube wants to compete with that as well. They have YouTube shorts. And a lot of what YouTube is favoring now is stuff that has really, really uh, short attention spans. Yeah. If you watch the beginning of the most popular videos on the platform right now, uh, you know it is an assault on the senses, which is not necessarily my taste. And so we always need to navigate, how do we capture the attention of our core audience? And I think there's a balance, right? You want to play to the algorithm intelligently. You want to give yourself the opportunity to grow and live in that space, but you don't want to do it to the extent that you are then alienating your core audience and they go,
1: what the hell is this? This isn't what I like. That's such an interesting tension. So how what does that look like in reality? You make the stuff that you always made and then cut a different version for shorts or do you make stuff that's just aimed at a shorts audience? Well, well above? It's,
0: <laughs> it's true in shorts, but it's also true within the long form, right? Mm-hmm. That, that change in attention has infected everything, right? TikTok's really, you look at every single company has changed fundamentally how they think about content. So it's something that we are trying to navigate. And I have theories here and I don't want to tip my hand too much as to what we're doing for the next six months, six to 12 months. But I think increasingly... Our salvation is in not trying to play that game forever. I am really interested, you know, you said I've been doing this for about a decade. I'm about nine years into The Try Guys, and I see several options ahead of me. There is shut up and play the hits forever. Um replace myself and Mm -hmm. you know bring in a new cast of recurring characters until we're the ship of theesis and we're placing every board on the boat and then is it even the same boat anymore who knows Um, uh, or what else can we do i mean there's a ton of options there but i think ultimately what me and my co-owners are most interested in is creating stuff You know, as artful as you can be on the internet, we would like to aspire to that. I think a lot about the difference between art and content. I think content is the thing that you scroll through and it flows through you. We were very successful making content for a long time. I could continue to be very successful making content, but I would like to find a way to position ourselves, to fulfill
1: our audiences, to fulfill ourselves, and to make art whenever possible. So you've you've been around long enough, and there are people around longer than you. You've been able to watch people who broke through on YouTube in the early days, and are now presumably much older than the YouTube audience would expect them to be. Do you, <laughs> how much are you thinking about like that replacing yourself or making you know making Try Guys into a brand where lots of other people can exist and maybe at some place supplant you, or is it always going to be the three of you are the core and that's what your audience wants? I think about this all
0: the time and I go back and forth on it. I, I think that there is an inevitability of opening ourselves to bringing more talent in because that makes the content more rich and fulfilling. You know, We, we started this conversation saying that a core tenant of our, our content is trying things unfamiliar to us. I've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> I've done a lot of crazy shit. I've had more once-in-a-lifetime opportunities than most people will ever have. So bringing new people into our content, it refreshes it for us. It refreshes it for the audience. But there's also uh, something, you know, lowercase as sacred and special about staying true to what we do and not bastardizing that, so to speak, mm-hmm. with, with diffusing it too much. So the answer is yes to both. I would like to find a way to, to keep what we do. I, I, I guess. More broadly than that, as you know, as opposed to who is in the video, who is not in the video, it's thinking about our strategy. Right now, we have really uh, high quality tentpole series. You know, we made a show for Food Network, but we also make food content on our channel that, in my opinion, is as good, if not better. Actually, in my opinion, it is better than what we produce <laughs> for a television company. Right, and then in between that we release two videos a week. So we, you know, you imagine not everything we do is up to the same caliber. I think that creates a strain in expectation for the audience and a strain of production for us. And so I don't think, I I know, I'm not going to chase the dragon forever. I don't care about trying to be viral forever because I've done that part of my life. I think now it's settling into who can we be five years from now, 10 years from now.
1: We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. And we're back. You'd mentioned TV, you guys had a Food Network show. Yeah. How do you think about your brand on YouTube and the internet versus your brand on traditional media? It's something I know a lot of your peers have struggled with and thought yeah. through and, and sometimes they'll say, oh, no, I always wanted to be on YouTube, but that turned out because their TV thing didn't work. Like, For How sure. do you think about what you're good at, whether or not it translates to other media?
0: Yeah, I'll be very transparent about that. I My goal when I came out to Los Angeles was to make traditional film and TV. Mm-hmm. Had no interest in digital. And I, you know, the three of us, we say that we fell into this. We're accidental YouTubers. We made something and it connected with an audience and we we ran with it. I certainly expected, uh, you know, similar to the, the music video uh, uh generation of the 90s where like people like Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones that was my dream. I was like, okay, YouTube's going to be like the next skate skating videos and YouTube videos where this talent will rise and and uh, daddy Hollywood will see how good we are at making stuff. They'll want to tap into our audience. Mm-hmm. And they'll give us opportunities. I've done now a few things in traditional media as the try guys and none of them have gone the way that I would have hoped. It is a combination of, I, I say really, it's just a, a lack of trust. It's of people trying to take us and plug us into something else, but you know, not uh, allowing us to oversee the edit and the production. And then mm-hmm. they look at it and they go, why does this feel different? I go, well, because you didn't let us make it. So increasingly, I expect that our the opportunity ahead of us is to Really connect with our audience and give them higher tier content directly and uh, not wait for someone else to green light those projects.
1: What if someone did trust you and said, hey, You got carte blanche, make your thing, make your YouTube thing, and we're going to run it on E Network or Pick Your Network or Food mm-hmm. Network? Do you think that would work, or do you think the audiences that are on linear TV? One don't know you and two may not get what you're doing because they're linear TV watchers. They're not YouTube watchers. Do you think there's a fundamental difference between the medium that makes it hard to 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 make that jump? Uh, yes and no. I, I think there's certain
0: formats that we do that wouldn't work on. TV and there are certain formats that we do that that would. Yeah. You know, broadly I, I think right now there are two buckets of of content that we do. There's companionship content and then there's more traditional entertainment. A lot of people go to the internet for this idea of companionship. They want to put something on that will play for an hour or two hours and they're watching it but it's also just a friend in their living room
1: that just sounds like a lot, like tv to a lot of generations though too well yeah and there's on tv right
0: there's different types of content there is mm-hmm. hbo and then there's the bachelor i call yeah. the
1: bachelor laundry tv that's companion Or right. there's soap operas or there's a four-hour right. morning newscast that you're kind of watching but not really absolutely
0: so I think YouTube is increasing and just digital in general is increasingly fulfilling that need in people's lives. Um, but for us, I think the reason that we haven't you know pursued TV more is also just a monetary one. We're able to here control the means of production. We're able to control the means of distribution. and you know what we've been paid to create that same content on on linear just hasn't made sense. You can for us. make
1: more money making YouTube videos than you can making TV shows. At the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I assume right now we're recording this in, in late August. The strike is the doubles. The writer strike is past 100 days. The writers and yep. actors are both striking. I'm assuming a bunch of people in town are saying, hey, we've got renewed interest in the Internet. Can you tell us how that <laughs> works? Are you getting those queries?
0: You know, shockingly not, uh, though maybe I just haven't been refreshing my email. We have been trying to, uh, you know, handle it really respectfully. A lot of the people that we work with and a lot of my friends are both in WGA and SAG. And so certainly we are not going to be talking to anyone
1: that, uh, that you know, attacks their interests in any way. Yeah, I, I didn't mean like, I mean, there's the, because you could have them on. I think you could literally have them on. I guess I, what I'm thinking are is I remember during the was 2007 2008 writer's strike there was a lot of like oh maybe we could go make youtube shows you know my friends who were writing sitcoms were thinking about and then as soon as the strike was they're like oh no fuck that we want to keep making tv shows do you hear from people who are new who are interested in making doing what you're doing well, I
0: think about in the 2007 strike, there was Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, right? Which was uh, something that Joss Whedon created. Yep. We don't talk about it much anymore for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was a really interesting different model. He dropped it for free every two days, and then it went away forever. And then I think you had to pay for it. Or maybe like Stride Gum sponsored the release, if I remember correctly. I was hugely excited about it. And yeah, yeah I-, I think that there are... A lot of really interesting, different ways to monetize, to get to your audience directly. And it's a way for us to do it that is, you know, we can cut out some of the bloat. We can more directly connect with our people and still pay everyone that we work with
1: really ethically and play them well. You guys came up in the YouTube era. You came up when BuzzFeed was a really big deal. Neither of those things... Well, it's still a YouTube era. BuzzFeed is not what it was. now. But now it's a TikTok era, and you're saying that's affecting content. If you were starting from zero today, if you were... It was 10 years ago, and you were in Hollywood trying to make your way. How do you think your career changes if TikTok is sort of the primary force moving entertainment?
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I think about this all the time because I don't know you know, everyone who asks me for advice, I say, uh, maybe go work for a giant media conglomerate and then siphon their audience to be their own. You know, <laughs> I didn't build my shit up from nothing. I, I stole someone else's audience and tricked them into loving me more than the the faceless brand. Um, I think it's really, really hard for creators now to own their audience. You know, I talk about the challenges that we have with the algorithm. Uh, it's even harder on on short form. And I know that a ton of short form creators struggle to Uh, uh, transfer their audiences over to YouTube to watch something more than five minutes, let alone to buy their product or buy their merch. So I imagine if I were starting today, I I don't know that I would have fallen into unscripted the way that I did. I probably would have done scripted shorts, short form on TikTok. And Mm -hmm. who knows where that would have led.
1: I I, I can't tell you. Is there someone on TikTok that you see and go, oh, I, I see them. They're the 10 year younger version of me. Uh that's a great question. Um
0: n- no, I I actually yes, the, yeah, there there are a lot of there are a ton, and, and names aren't coming to mind, but there are people who are making ideas that I wish I had. There's a, a YouTube group called Cheeky Boyos. They make shorts content specifically, but mm-hmm. then it blows my mind because I'll watch them and they burn in 20 seconds a concept that, in my opinion, I could I could milk 20 minutes out of that. Uh, and so there's something that's happening to storytelling, uh, and I think this is very much the Mr. Beastification of TikTok or of YouTube as well, where The attention span is so short, and I don't necessarily mean of the viewers, I just mean of what they are being given, um, that we're not, you know having the luxury of living in scenes. And I, it's something that I,
1: I miss when I watch other people's I'm astonished content. when I go to my TikTok and I remember, I think occasionally, like, wait a minute, I remember signing up to, to watch this creator. I don't see them anymore. Maybe they stopped and mm-hmm. then I'll go look for them. And it turns out they've been making stuff for the last couple of months. And TikTok has just decided not to show them to me, even though I've asked to see it. And I just can't imagine that that kind of that sounds even more brutal than the standard algorithm complaint a YouTuber has. Yeah, it's really hard and and really scary for those creators as well, right? I mean,
0: you you feel like you don't own your audience. I, I also think, look, there's been this democratization of content creation, which is a wonderful thing. Anyone can be a content creator. But I think in practice, what that has meant is that very few people can be professional content creators. When I go on TikTok or when I'm watching shorts, I'm watching just people. You know, Mm -hmm. kids making videos for fun or someone who recorded their dog doing something funny. Those are not professional content creators. TikTok has created an environment in which everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to have those 15 seconds of fame. Everyone is contributing to that. They didn't
1: create that, by the way. No,
0: sure. But they've made it really easy for people to tap into that. Mm -hmm. And now as a result... Again, I think that monetization is just not there. So for that middle class of creators, for that you know younger class of creators, I don't know how they make a sustainable income doing that, even though they are entertaining millions of people
1: on the daily. Yeah, for free. Um, for free. It's a great system if you own the system. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that, that you guys had an issue last year. So briefly, there were four try guys. The other try guy was Ned. There was a there was a Me Too scandal. He's no longer in the program. And I will confess that when I heard about the scandal, I did not realize you guys were making content. I associated with you you with the the BuzzFeed upfronts that I'd seen. So I was surprised to learn that you guys were still uh, a big deal. So mm-hmm. that, I, my apologies Thank for my so ignorance. Thank you so much. But it also occurs to me that that might have been a good thing for you. You ended up, there was an SNL sketch parroting your apology or, uh, your, I don't know, it's an apology video, your video to your fans. And, and there, that whole point of the SNL sketch was that lots of people were like me and, and didn't really understand was going on with the try guys my long-winded question is was there upside to to that to that news event and sort of shrinking the 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 group in my opinion well was those are
0: two different things was there upside in shrinking the group yeah (laughs) we uh now have a more consolidated leadership and i'm very excited and happy about where we are headed but no i i you know look i think there's the old adage that uh, no news is bad news. Mm-hmm. It was an incredibly destabilizing event for us. Uh, the good I take out of it is that, wow, it, it turns out that so many people at some point have cared about the stuff that I made, right? Mm-hmm. A story like this does not get big unless it's like, wow, at some point, whether now or a couple years ago, we mattered to people, that's right. exciting to see. But in terms of the fallout, no, it's been incredibly challenging. It's It's been... Uh, uh, trying to instill confidence within the staff that we are good <laughs> and and everything is going to be okay. It is about coming up with a vision for the future that we can all get excited about and believe in to instill belief. Um, and then, you know, there was algorithmic fallout from that as well. Uh, we... Shot up, I want to say, two hundred fifty thousand subscribers, which is oh wow, what an exciting thing. Well, those are people that are not true subscribers. They those came are by people, to see the car crash. They want to see the car crash. They want to see the drama. There's no more car crashes. They slowly start to unsubscribe, and so we're just just now recovering from it. But every month this year, we had a negative subscriber growth. That means uh, that means. Uh, a negative metric which means that youtube says oh this channel's not doing well that uh-huh. means less surfacing that means less mo- uh, money in so yeah i mean it's really <laughs> fucked us man it's it that's sucked. so
1: fascinating i was thinking you were saying, well we, we were exposed to new fans but you're saying for the most part those those new fans and i'm sure there's some who love you but a lot of them were just there to see the spectacle and then turned around and left and that has long-term effects
0: Absolutely. And, you know, look, I, I don't think that living in the spectacle is a great place to be as a creative. A lot of people make big careers on it, not mm-hmm. one that I'm interested in. So I would say respectfully to creators out there, you don't want to go viral. That was the goal when I was at BuzzFeed, uh, you know, eight years ago. It was all about being viral. I think that today you want to have your fandom and you want to feed them. And frankly, I'm, I'm, I would be thrilled to never enter the public conversation ever again.
1: Yes, a toil and, and not really anonymity, but, but, but internet fame as opposed yeah, to- Yeah, I think that's all right. It's a good place to be. viral fame. This is another stupid question from me, maybe my last. Your PR people said, hey, you should talk about this cool interactive thing they're doing, but it looked like it happened like two weeks ago. You sure did. did an intera- okay, so you did an interactive Shakespeare bit. Explain how that worked. As part of trying to
0: mix up our content strategy, we're thinking about, okay, are there ways to go directly to the audience? Uh, We recently put on a Romeo and Juliet live stream. Why the hell would we do that? Well, kind of that's the answer. Why the hell would we do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we figured out a way to make it interactive where... Scene to scene, our audience could vote on what happened. So Juliet's going to drink poison. No, she's going to chug hot sauce. Or, you know, my death is Romeo. I took, I got to take a bong rip. And I didn't choose that. They chose that. Um, so it was very fun to, you know, it, it was a way to close that bridge and, and bring our audiences in to let them feel like they were interacting with us. And, you know, we trained for about two weeks to... To really try and nail Shakespeare, uh, you know, well, about two months, but then two weeks of, of true rehearsals. Yeah. And then we gave the audience the keys and let them try and fuck it up.
1: And, and so it's, that's, that's, that is a stunt, right? Letting the audience... I, yeah, I guess so, right? ...live in real yeah. time. Is that something... Was there enough there that you think... Oh, we could do this again, or is it by definition a novelty and you do one shot at that and then you try something else?
0: Well, we did a, a live stream prior and we're gonna do another one in the winter for Without a Recipe, which is our cooking show. So we figured out a way to do that live, let people vote on the winner and and, and clue into or mm-hmm. be part of the content. You know, it was a ticketed event, right? So that's just us continually trying to figure out how do we get directly to the audience? We had done a tour, but you know, going on a tour is takes a lot of time. It's not sustainable. Um, we've done merch in the past. We've done products, but I don't really like to make products. I make entertainment. So it's us trying to figure out ways increasingly to bring our entertainment directly to our audience and, yeah, come up with different monetization streams so that it's not
1: just re- relying on AVOD. So we'll leave on this note. You mentioned sustainability. Again, you've been at this for nearly a decade. Yeah. Really long time by the internet standards. How much longer can you can you be a try guy as a hmm. main job, as a day job? Is this something you can do for another decade? Can you do it indefinitely? I think
0: if I do my job right, yeah, this is something that we can do for another decade. Uh, but we're going to have to change. You know, I, I think that there are creators who I admire who have been able to figure out a format that can stay the same for a long time. It's not me. It's just not something that I enjoy doing. And I don't think it's where our content is at its best. So I think longevity is going to require adaptation and change, Uh, changing the way that we monetize, changing the way our content looks, continuing to play with algorithms, but not falling victim to them, you know, letting data inform what we make, but not dictate it. It's it's all of it. I'm confident, but certainly there's a challenge ahead zach Carfeld, i wish you and the other two try guys great luck thank you and uh i look forward to talking to you in eight years when you're like wow you're still doing it i'm still I doing no idea. it and i'll be on my walker you know and, you i'm know. not gonna lie i i stopped know, knowing about you when we did that interview <laughs> i'll
1: i'll i'll check back sooner than that nice to meet you All zach right. thank you hey, take care thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free that's zero dollars still the same Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show, and thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.